Church, we are in the middle of a series called Heritage, but if you were uh, online this last week, uh, especially on Facebook, you saw that we are taking a break from that today to talk about uh, what's going on in our world today. And I was really, really blown away, like 3,300 views, Uh, so uh, thanks mom for watching that a hundred times, I appreciate that. Really, really nice of you to bump that number up. But anyway, uh, I was really, really blown away at the, at, the, at the number of views. And I think the reason why, uh, why it, it, it is seeing that kind of uh, in, uh, interest is because I think the idea of ISIS and refugees and the current world crisis is on all of our minds at some level. And there, there may be a few of you in the audience today who maybe you've just maybe buried your head in the sand and say, you know what, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going on, so I'm not interested, and I'll just do my thing and let them figure all that stuff out. And I just would encourage you not to take that position. I think it's really important to understand what's going on in the world and have a mindset that says, you know what, how does Scripture uh, intersect uh, with current events, and what should my response be as a Christian, as a Christ follower? And so this morning, we're going to spend some time talking about that. Uh, and, and, and so if you're new, this is way different, way different, and that's okay. Uh, I don't think you're here by accident to hear this conversation. A couple of words of just preface before we dive into some scripture and talk very practically about what's going on in our world today. First of all, I'm not an expert in politics. This is not going to be a political message. I'm your pastor, and I want to speak to you from God's word about what God's word says about how we should respond as Christians. And so you may not agree with what I say, and that's okay in terms of politics, but let's all just embrace that as Christ followers, you know, we're in a church today, and I think we should embrace that Scripture should be our governing authority in terms of our response. Is that, is that fair? So just, just know this is not politically driven. Uh, and there may be a couple of political statements made along the way, but, but, but it's not my heart to be political. Uh, secondly, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in history, nor am I an expert in uh, Islamic studies. So my, I'm just going to give you, as best I understand, what's going on in the wor- world and, and, again, how Scripture collides with that. So let's talk very practically. Uh, we're going to answer, we're going to talk about two things. Number one, what is, it, what is a reasonable response to ISIS? I'm going to give you some definition about what ISIS is and what I understand their goals to be. And then what should a response be from a Christian? And then even in terms of our, our national, uh, a national picture, what does Scripture say in terms of, of government? What's government's responsibility? And then I want to answer the question as best I can, what, 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 what should we do? What should our view be on uh, Syrian refugees, and by the way, others as well, but Syrian refugees coming into our nation right now? What, what's the Christian heart there as well? Before I answer those two questions, though, let's get some context. I want to take you to a place in the Scripture, and it won't be on your screens this morning, which we usually do, but, but I want to, if you want to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 10 is where I want to look for just a couple of minutes to give us a biblical framework to be able to answer the questions about what's going on in our world today. Matthew chapter 10. Here's what's going on. Jesus is about to send out his uh, 12 disciples. Now, the, the sending out of people uh, by Jesus happens several times in Scripture. He sends 70 plus people out on one occasion. This is the occasion where he sends out 12. Now, church, this is really important to hear. Jesus is sending the 12 out as his representatives in the world. People know how Jesus acts. They've seen him, and they're going to see much more of him. Now they're going to see how Jesus' followers act in the world. It's a great picture of helping us understand how we should act because we also are representatives of Christ. We're called disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. And so this is great information even for us to embrace today. So here's the context. Jesus says, guys, I'm giving you 
given you power. You're going to have power to heal and to cast out demons. And, and I want you to go from town to town and village to village. And if you, you're accepted in a home, bless it. If you're not accepted, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He's given them great advice. He gives them a broad perspective on how to handle all this. But there's two verses specific, specifically that I want to give to you today. I think they should be the governing verses in how we conduct ourselves as Christians in terms of the current events. So Jesus looks at his disciples in verse number 16 of Matthew chapter 10. And he says to them, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, on a personal note, that is not inspiring to me as a pastor. I don't look at that verse and go, man, I'm emboldened to do my job as a Christian. Because there's something within me, especially as it relates to seeing injustice in the world and evil in the world, that doesn't want to pick like the sheep as the animal of choice here, right? I mean, there's something within me that says, if he could have selected a different animal to be a representation of me to the world, I would have appreciated it. Like a lion, maybe? (laughs) But we're sheep. And not only are we sheep, but we're sheep among wolves. In other words, Jesus knows he's sending his disciples out to a very hostile world. And yet he still wants their mentality to be sheep. And then he says to them, Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Now, different versions of the Bible say different things here, but, but if, you, if you drill down to the, to the important words, the idea of shrewd is wisdom. It's a mixture of, of, of a godly perspective, common sense, a right-sizing, a right-thinking, right and then innocence. The, the word innocence here in some translation, translations is translated harmless. But I think the better translation is innocent. The Greek word literally means to have a perfect moral character. In other words, as you go out in the world and there are, there are wolves everywhere and they are seeking to destroy you or they're seeking to persecute you and harm you, as you're going out, you use common sense You use wisdom and you mix that with high moral character. As you conduct yourself, don't give in to the persecutions and become something that you're not. Be a representation of Christ on earth and it looks a lot like a sheep. That's Jesus' point in the text. He goes on to talk, uh, again, just giving them good information as they're going out. Uh, He gives them more instruction. But as the text unfolds, look with me in verse number 28. I think it's the next guiding verse that should guide our conversation today. In, In chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, you're going out, you're sheep, but do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, or instead, fear the one or be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So in the midst of the wolves, as you're going out and as you're you're impacting the world in the midst of this chaos... You're wise, you're innocent, and the only fear that you have is, is, is not of the one who can literally kill you physically, but the only fear you have is the one by whom can by the one who can kill both the body and the soul in hell. It's the one you will one day stand before and give an account. That's the one you should fear. Now, why should you fear that one? Because the one who can kill the body only deals with the temporary, the here and now. But the one who you will stand before and give an account of, he is the one who controls your eternity. 
And so rather than being caught up in fear about someone that might hurt you physically, be caught up in the idea of one day I'll stand before God and give an account of my life and how I conducted myself matters way more than just simply living or dying a physical life or death, right? Okay, so this is the context by which Jesus sends them out. They are his representatives. <laughs> Do the disciples always get it right? No. In some, in some respect, I'm thankful they don't always get it right because I don't always get it right. But it at least should be the governing pattern. This is how we're going to conduct ourselves. All right, so in light of those verses, how then should we view current world events? Let me begin by saying this, that what took place in Paris just a week or so ago was, 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 was barbaric and savage. It was the picture of evil on earth. It is the face of evil in our generation. And I might just say, if you're a teenager here today, you, you need to know this, that, that while this might look very, very bad, and it is very, very bad, please know that this is not the first time uh, humanity has been faced with an evil in the world. America has had to stand up to evil in the world many, many times, and Christianity has come into contact and come face to face with evil many, many times throughout its history. And so while it's very, very ugly today in, in, in some parts of the world, in some places, certainly this is not new. But I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I want to be clear on this. And I, I think it's important that the church be clear in terms of what is evil and what is good. What ISIS is doing in the world today is, is morally wrong. Walking into environments where you just simply gun people down as they're carrying out their daily lives at a restaurant or in a concert hall, gunning them down, blowing yourself up at an at a athletic event is, is, uh, is the face of evil in our world today. Many people debate on whether or not ISIS is, uh, is a, a good representation of, of the actual uh, religion of Islam. And church this morning, I'm not going to get into a debate or a long discussion about this. If you want to hear my take on it, I'll be glad to give it to you. That's not for this morning. But here's what I would say. The, the, the intended stated goal of ISIS, ISIS is the Islamic, estate, Islamic, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. You may hear your president say, or our president say, ISIL, which is Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant, which Levant meaning a larger area in the region. But in either case, the stated goal of ISIS is to establish a, a state, a nation state. They want boundaries and borders, and they want to establish this state, and they want to establish Sharia law. Sharia law is a strict adherence to the Quran. They want to, now, by the way, that's not new. Sharia law does exist right now in the Middle East, but they want to establish strict adherence to the Quran, and they want to reinstitute the caliphate system. Now, the caliphate system is a system that was, that was, that was uh, a part of the origins of Islam. Uh, Muhammad uh, was, was, was uh, uh, when, when Muhammad passed away, there were four caliphs, four leaders that took the place of Muhammad uh, in, a, in a series of years, and they, they basically were in charge. They were, they were the caliph of, of, of Islam. And so, ISIS doesn't just want to implement Sharia law. They want to implement the hierarchy system that was in place when Muhammad established the religion of Islam. Not only that, ISIS wants to see Sharia law reign on the entire earth. They want Sharia law to exist as American law as well. 
Now, again, whether you believe that is, that is the right form of Islam or whether it's a perverted or twisted form of Islam, it is what ISIS is doing today. And they aren't interested in resting until that's established. And so what is a correct response from a biblical perspective as a Christian? Well, I think Romans chapter 13 speaks to this. Romans chapter 13, Paul is speaking how Christians, on how Christians should respond to governing authorities. And this is what Paul says. First of all, we should submit to governing authorities. It's the right, it's the right responsibility of a Christian to submit to governing authorities and, by the way, to pray for those in leadership whether you agree politically with them or not. But I want you to notice the response Paul places or the responsibility Paul places on government. Romans chapter 13, verse number 4, Paul, after saying we should submit to those in authority, Paul says, for he that is the governing authority is God's servant to do you good. So the responsibility of a government is 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 to bless its citizens, to protect its citizens, to do them good. But if you do wrong, Paul says, be afraid. For he, that is the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Paul's point in this text is that God has established established governments. And the responsibility of a government is to make sure that justice is maintained in any given society. There are rules and, and, and there should be peace in a society. And the government's responsible for doing that. To protect its citizens and to, and to defend its citizens against all attacks. It's the responsibility. It's the picture of a sword. It's the weapon of offense. It's to go engage enemies as they encounter or as they come against a nation. So, as a Christian, I think it's very appropriate for us to expect our government to defend us against all threat, both foreign and domestic. It is the responsibility of our government. And hear me, whether you agree with our president or not, church, we ought to be praying for him and encouraging our government to stand up in the face of evil, to call evil what it is, to have moral clarity, and be willing to defend this United States and other innocent people around the world against this threat. One of the interesting things that's come to light as I begin to study this whole idea of how our our government should engage in conflict is in terms of how Christians should be viewed in light of, uh, of, of, of their service, for instance, to our nation through the military. I recognize in our society today, in our world today, that we're asking our soldiers to go engage in conflict and, and ultimately be willing to kill someone who is trying to harm us and hurt us. And you look at those verses and you think about Jesus' verse, uh, Jesus' statements like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. And how do you reconcile serving in the military and having to, 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 to be willing to kill uh, someone else and these verses that Jesus calls us to? Um, these are really, really difficult verses to wrestle with. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but I, I've talked to many different soldiers, and certainly this is a theological conversation as well, but I've talked to many soldiers who've really been conflicted in their heart about serving our nation and carrying out you know, their responsibility as soldiers versus what Jesus calls them to. So just for a minute or so, let me unpack for you kind of where the debate lies and then give you, I think, a, 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 an appropriate response according to Scripture. Let me give you some history to get you there. In the, first, in the first century, Jesus, Jesus uh, you know, ascends into heaven. The, the, the church is established. And one of the things the church has a responsibility to do, you know, it has the king, keys to the kingdom, right? And so it has the responsibility of, of setting up the church, of having it operate and function in a way that Jesus would be honored with. 
And so in the first century church, as a matter of fact, for the first couple of hundred years in the existence of the, of the church, um, they were faced with this very conflict. There were Roman soldiers who were wanting to convert to Christianity. And, and some of the practices in the first century church, actually in the first couple of hundred years, as I just said, some of the churches practiced this idea that they asked these Roman soldiers to take an oath. And the oath was that you could be a Roman soldier and participate in the civil duties of a Roman soldier, but you had to take an oath that you would not pick up your sword and kill another person in battle. And these, these, these Roman soldiers were faced with this difficult situation. If they were to be baptized accept, uh, and, and accept Christ, they would have to take this oath. And many churches practice this. Another, another um, practice in the early church was that if a Roman soldier was not willing to take that oath, that they would have to leave their post as a soldier to be willing to come uh, and be baptized. It's a really difficult situation for Roman soldiers for sure. So for the first couple of hundred years, this was part of the practice of the church. We don't know if it's universal, if, it's, if, if, if it was uh, just in certain churches, but this is what was going on. Something very interesting happened, though. In those first couple of hundred years, Christianity really existed within the corners of the Roman Empire. It wasn't prominent at all. As a matter of fact, if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire, you were, you were, uh, you were oftentimes persecuted, killed for your faith, but you were certainly marginalized. And so Christianity had not penetrated greatly into the Roman Empire at this point. And so re- something really interesting happens under the emperor Constantine in the, in the fourth century. Constantine, after a series of emperors hostile to Christianity, Constantine implements this, this new idea, the Edict of Milan, which says that Christianity can now be recognized as, a, as, a, as a, a, an appropriate uh, means of worshiping God. So Christianity now becomes front and center in Roman culture as opposed to, be mar- opposed to being marginalized. So what happens? Now Christianity becomes, becomes, uh, becomes a prominent place in the Roman Empire. Christians begin to take all kinds of positions in the empire, not just soldiers, but now they're in charge, uh, they're, in, they're in political positions. And, and matter of fact, you have the emperor now who claims he's a Christian as well. Something really interesting happens during that period. Uh, Augustine and, and several others, Ambrose and several others, begin to, to begin to wrestle with, all right, how do Christians fit into the overall view of public service? Not just as soldiers, but the larger picture. Through this period of time, a doctrine becomes established. It's called the just war doctrine. And the just war doctrine basically is a doctrine that says, how do we reconcile Jesus' words in light of, of, of world events, in light of service in these different positions? Now, if you've not studied the just war doctrine, I don't have time to unpack it this morning, but the short version of the story is this, this theological picture of how, when you go to war and who can serve in war basically looks like this. It's appropriate, if you reconcile Scripture cover to cover, it's appropriate under just war theory for, for wars to take place so long as they are justifiable in the sense of they are protecting, they are defending uh, 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 citizens, or they are handling an injustice or a misjustice in the world. So war can be carried out if the purpose of the war is good. Also, war can be carried out if it's a last resort, and we've tried other means. Also, war can be carried out so long as the motive or the intent of the heart is pure in going to war. So this is the rough version of what just war means. And in, in, a, in setting apart or setting up the just war theory, it allowed Christians now to be able to serve in military and fight in war and conflict and not be contradictory to Scripture. 
So in our world today, in, in our nation today, here we have Christians serving in, mili- in, in the military, and I think they are justified in going to war and fighting this injustice in the war. And someone might say to me this morning, they might say, well, Matt, don't you understand what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is arrested? Don't you know that story? Peter has his sword, and he cuts the guy's ears off, and Jesus, or the guy's ear off. He's swinging for his head, and Jesus looks at him and said, hey, Peter, no, put your sword away. You don't understand the kingdom. If you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Here Jesus is saying, don't fight. Which caused me to think, why did Peter have a sword in the first place? For three years, he carries a sword with Jesus. Jesus says nothing about the sword for the three years. I think people look at that verse and they misunderstand what Jesus is saying in the verse. Jesus is, saying, Jesus is not saying don't fight. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're misunderstanding what this is all about. I'm here to establish a kingdom not of this world. You think I'm here to establish a kingdom on this earth. I'm not. Our kingdom is not of this world, so put away your sword. You're missing the point. I don't think Jesus is implementing a non-war policy here. And I don't believe that because Jesus in other verses of Scripture say... In this world, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, Matthew 24. And so I think in terms of what we do with ISIS is we allow our government to go destroy the face of evil on this earth. And I think it's appropriate that Christians be engaged in that war so long as it's a just war. What do you do, though, with with this crisis on our hand called the Syrian refugee crisis? Syria is in a very, very, very difficult war. There's internal conflict. There's civil war going on. ISIS is establishing uh, uh, their, their uh, uh, presence in the area. You have Syrian refugees who are fleeing the area, trying to get out of harm's way. And so what do you do with them? Certainly, if you've been watching and following the, the, the reports, you know that the refugees were responsible, at least in part, in what happened in Paris. Uh, we know that uh, some, some have argued that the Boston bombers were refugees. Uh, I've been following all those stories, and I've been conflicted about this for sure. But again, I'm your pastor. I'm trying to reconcile what do you do with, with what Jesus says in and, and, and light of what's going on. Let me give you just for a moment some history again to help you understand the importance of this conversation because it matters how we view this refugee situation. Let me tell you why. In 1939, the MS St. Louis, which was a ship captained by Gustav Schroeder, set sail from Europe towards the United States. On board that ship were 908 Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi occupation in Germany, fleeing what would become Hitler's attempt not just to kill Jews, but to annihilate them from the face of the earth. When we were in in Israel just a couple of weeks ago, we walked through the Holocaust Museum and we listened to the stories about what took place under Nazi Germany and how horrific the events were in the lives of Jews under Nazi oppression. These 908 Jews are fleeing that occupation, that chaos. And on this ship, the captain is trying to find a place to offload them, to get them to safety. And 
His purpose, his intent is to, is to take them to Cuba. Cuba has, has been willing to accept Jewish refugees in the, uh, in, in the past. But uh, as these things are unfolding in real time, Cuba establishes new laws that, that, for, that forbid Jewish refugees from coming into Cuba and finding refuge there. So on the way to take these Jewish refugees to Cuba, they are turned away and the Jewish refugees are not allowed to come to Cuba. The captain has another idea. He wants now to take them to America. And so he's, he, he, he changes course just a little bit and he sets sail towards Florida. And his hope is, is that once he arrives in Florida, the Jewish refugees will be welcomed into the United States, safe from Nazi Germany. But, but the United States turns away this captain and these 908 Jewish refugees. The captain, not wanting to take these refugees back to Europe, spends some time just meandering through the, uh, the waters off the coast of Florida, hoping that the American people will, uh, will, would put pressure on the United States government and they would change their policy and welcome these Jewish refugees in. The United States did not change their policies. They would not allow these Jews to come in. Only a handful of them made it off the boat in different places. The vast majority of them went back to Europe. In research, historians have estimated that after their return to Europe, approximately one quarter of the ship's passengers died in death camps. You take that story in our history and you couple that with what happened at Pearl Harbor, where our nation was attacked against, uh, uh, by Japan Many, many soldiers, people lost their life. Ships were destroyed. And the response of America in that time is to round up Japanese, uh, Japanese uh, people who were living here in the States and, and, and put them in, in, in camps and, 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 and confine them so that America can be safe from them. So this is a part of our history. We've dealt with this before. And so what do you do in light of that? Well, One of the things I think the church should not do, and I want to be clear on this, the church should not condemn past decisions through the lens or filter of hindsight. I think it does us no good and no service to just simply look back and say, how dare you, how dumb, how stupid, how nearsighted for you to do those kinds of things. Because the events on the ground were so chaotic and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the tension was so high that they were acting with the best possible, ability, uh, best possible information that they had to work with. And so were there mistakes made? Of course there were. The church is at its best, not when it condemns, but when it learns. And I think we take those things, those events, and we learn, for, for, uh, we learn how to respond in light of them. And so I want to give you that information just, just in closing today. What do we do? Well, Jesus made it pretty clear what we should do. You may not like his words. Sometimes I don't like his words because they make me really uncomfortable. But this is what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 35. He's talking to, to the crowd about standing before God on the day of judgment, standing before Jesus, and Jesus saying, hey, listen, well done. Well done. This is what you did. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. Those are not the verses you want to hear when Syrian refugees are wanting to come to America knowing that it's people from Syria that are engaged in these terrorist attacks. Not what you want to hear, but it's what he calls us to. And this is where I think Jesus' words of Matthew 10 are really important, church. This is where you balance wisdom and innocence. It's true in just war. 
It's wisdom and innocence. I'm going to be wise and not lose common sense, and I'm going to operate in just war with innocence, with purity of intention and purity of, 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 of ethics in war. And here again, we see the balance, wisdom and innocence. Right now in our nation, 30 states have said no to Syrian refugees or wait on Syrian refugees. I don't know if you know this or not, but our governor, Governor Mary Fallon, has asked President Obama to stop accepting refugees, Syrian refugees, until we can be sure that they, it is thor- they are thoroughly vetted before they come into our nation. I actually think, and this is the most political statement you'll hear from me, I actually think that's a very reasonable approach of our governor. It's both wisdom and innocence. We're not saying no, let's just make sure we're not welcoming in people who are going to kill us. That's a right approach to this situation. But church, I want you to hear this. Some people look at this and they're uncomfortable with it, like, oh my gosh, we're going to welcome these people in. What if they come to Oklahoma and what happens? And I think sometimes the church can, become, can look at this in terms of despair rather than in hope. You ready? Hear me. This is a great opportunity for the church to be the church. Jesus says, welcome the stranger, feed the hungry, care for those in need. And church, in our world today, in the 21st century, the church has lost a little bit of relevance. And I think God has opened a window of opportunity for the church to gain again some relevance, to be light shining into darkness. Because here's the uncomfortable truth. Christians do not react the way the rest of the world reacts. Christians react according to what Christ calls us to. Our response is not fear those who are coming. They can only, only, Jesus says, deal with the physical realm. We should fear the one who will give an account of our lives to, the one who calls us to love the stranger. And not only that, church, hear me, we're called a place of refuge, right? We're Solace Church, a place of refuge for people in need. My prayer is not just, you know, that it's like abstract, that, you know, somewhere out there someone's caring for these people. How cool would it be and awkward and weird and difficult would it be if we had a chance to impact their life as well? You're like, oh, pastor, don't get us involved in something. That's uncomfortable, right? I know, that's Jesus. I get it. And he makes us uncomfortable. Here's something else and I'm done. As I understand the number of refugees that have made their way in, I think we're trying to, trying to make a way for 10,000 to, to come in. Some have estimated more, many more than that. I think Hillary Clinton may have estimated maybe 65,000. But, but there's several thousand that have come to the United States at this point. The last numbers I saw, over 2,000 were Muslim and only a, a couple of dozen were Christians. Hear me. Hear me. God just might be bringing some people into Oklahoma that desperately need to see the love of Jesus. You see, the greatest conflict we face today, church, is not ISIS. The greatest conflict that we face today is there is a lost world dying without Jesus. And they need the light of Christ to shine into their life. And my prayer is that we don't run in fear and hide from the battle, but that we take the words of Jesus seriously. That we're going to use common sense and we're not going to be stupid in this and we're not going to be ignorant of this and naive, but we're going to be sheep among the chaos of the world, which is a world of wolves devouring each other. And we're going to come in and share Jesus with the world. And so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to pray that God would give us the ability to be light shining in darkness. And I want us to pray today for our leaders because they are faced with this incredible responsibility of protecting 
the citizens of the United States. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning with me. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.